Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? This is Trevor. You could find us at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks. That's one word. Uh, become a premium subscriber. You get double the episodes. You also get access to the Discord voice and chat server and a bunch of other goodies we're going to be uh, introducing in coming weeks. But I want to introduce my guest. I'll let him actually introduce himself. Hey, I'm Adrian Miller, uh, the Soul Food Scholar. My tagline is dropping knowledge like hot biscuits. <laughs> Your writing is very informal, but informative. Like, I like that it is very, it's very accessible, but you have really done your homework. And I wanted to know, uh, how did you get so knowledgeable? Actually, first, tell people what your mission statement in your writing is and then uh, how you got so knowledgeable about it. Yeah. So uh, essentially what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to bring life to the untold stories or unheralded stories of African-Americans through food. And I believe that food is a great way to connect to history as well to get to know uh, something about each other. And so um, I always look for those stories that um, may have been told in the past or forgotten or ones that really just have never been told. And um, it was not the career path I thought I was gonna have. I really thought at this point in my life, I'd be a US Senator, but I kind of took a side path into food history and it's been very, uh, it's been a blessing. Yeah, I think you made the better choice, <laughs> honestly. For my um, own happiness, for sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, not just, this is a little bit of a side, but I just feel like to become big in politics now is, Maybe it's changing and stuff because uh, we've had some recent elections that have been kind of interesting. But I feel like politics is so made for to get far. You have to shave off so many rough edges or sides <laughs> of your personality. Like it's so hard to um, be like very honest and forthcoming these days in this age of like polls and instant access to every reaction out there and stuff. So I think it's right. yeah, yeah. So I, I think what you want to do the most good and you have the most like uh, intense ideas and stuff you're never going to get that far because you never live too interesting a life <laughs> past yeah. any vetting you know what i'm saying right right yeah and i, I hope that that's not because i'm a big believer in politics so i hope we can get to a point where that's no longer the case but yeah, what you, so too. yeah what you put your finger on is so true and the other thing that's soul crushing are two things is uh the constant fundraising yep. and because i i hate fundraising I, I, it just feels like begging and i only like to beg when i'm on a date i <laughs> no, that's too much information. Uh, and then the fact is, I'm one of these cats that wants to get stuff done. And so to be in a deliberative body that rarely gets stuff done would just kill me. Yeah. Yeah. And so much of everything is designed to get nothing done because uh, you have to kind of please everyone, especially in the national level. It, it's it's tough. It's tough. But yeah, I agree with you. I hope I hope that happens. But we'll see. But I, I want to talk about. Well, I'll give some of my own story. Right. Um, yeah. I'm not of American descent. My family's uh, Haitian. I'm born. I'm born in America, though. I'm a, I'm a New Yorker. Mm -hmm. But I really didn't understand barbecue as black food for a lot of my life. Ah. I kind of just thought of it as like Southern food. And I had this idea of Southern food as just this kind of shared black and white culture, you know, you know, and yeah. as I started learning more and more, I kind of started realizing, okay, a lot of the food that's being made in the white households is being prepared by the black chef, the actual like white matriarch 
wasn't actually doing a lot of the cooking most of the time and stuff. And somebody had told me once that, you know, uh, Southern food is just soul food that a white chef makes money off of. And <laughs> when I heard that, I was like, I never thought of it like that. Like, I never really thought of the fact that Southern food and soul food is not a real difference. It's just somehow it is more elevated when you call it uh, Southern food and it's Paula Dean making it, you know, as opposed to the person who descends from the the slave or the maid, you know, you know, and I became very interested in this topic um, before I actually found your work. Like my interest in this topic was what led me to find you. Oh, okay. And that's what makes me interested in what was your path to um, this expertise. Yeah. So let me push back a little bit because I actually think there is a, some difference between Southern food and soul food. There's, yeah. quite, a, there's quite a bit of an overlap. But um, as it's played out, I think it's really in how the food is uh, performed. So how it's made, how it's seasoned, and kind of social context really leads to those differences, even though you had African-Americans cooking in a lot of white kitchens. But um, the, man, there's a lot of overlap. So it's a, it's a complicated story. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I agree because it's, it's like rock and roll. You can say rock and roll was taken by black people. But at the same time, when you hear Sergeant Pepper, it's clear it's evolved in a different direction, even if it is a technically black originated art form. Yep, yep. Uh, the thing that's unfortunate is that food has not been as well documented as the musical story. So a lot of us are still trying to uncover, you know, how that really happened. Uh, but as for me, uh, I was born and raised in Denver, Colorado, which immediately loses me all street cred on the subject of Southern food, soul food and barbecue. But um, I had two Southern parents. My mom is from Chattanooga, Tennessee. My dad is from Helena, Arkansas. So I grew up eating soul food. And uh, I was gonna, I had a career in law and politics, but it was really uh, unemployment that kind of put me on this path. So I had just finished working uh, a stint in the Clinton White House and um, the job market was really slow. So I was watching a lot of daytime television. I'm not gonna even tell you what shows. Daytime television always leads to the lowest comedy <laughs> nightmare stuff. No matter how elevated you try to keep it, it's, so I understand. Yeah, uh, so I, I said, you know what? I should read something. So I went to the bookstore and I'd always loved cooking and I'm browsing in the cookbook section and I find a book on the history of Southern food uh, called Southern Food at Home on the Road in History by a guy named John Edgerton. And in that book, he wrote that the tribute to African-American cookery has yet to be written. And the book was about 10 years old when I saw that. I thought that was interesting. So I emailed uh, Mr. Edgerton and I asked him, hey, you know, you wrote this. Do you still think this is true? And he said, yeah, for the most part, nobody's taken on the full story. So with no qualifications at all, except for eating a lot of soul food and cooking it some, that started to be on the journey to writing these books on soul, on food history. Do you do that a lot? Like email, like random authors of things you like? Uh, no, that was an unusual thing for me to do. Um, That's a very now, interesting thing to do. Yeah. Now that I'm on the writing side, I actually am starting to write more fan mail to authors and just yeah. tell them, hey, you know, this was a really good book that you wrote. Um, because so many good books are out there and they're not going to get a James Beard Award or accolades, but they're really good work. And I just wanted to encourage those authors. Yeah. I only asked that because I think it's a really good habit. Like, And like you said, it, it led you somewhere. It sparked something. But yeah, the, the fact that you uh, contacted him and the fact that he responded is great. Absolutely. And he, he responded fairly quickly, which I did not expect. So what happened next after that? What was the rest of the journey? Yeah, so I moved back to Denver. I finally did get a job. So I came back to Denver. And again, at that point in my life, I was thinking I was going to be a U.S. senator. So I came back to Denver to start my, you know, laying the groundwork for that. Uh, so I worked at a, a political think tank for about six years. And then surprisingly, uh, a Democrat won the governorship 
and his people reached out to me and asked me to come work for him. So I did that for another four years. And then he uh, surprised everyone by deciding not to run for re-election. And at that point, I knew that I would probably work on this book forever if I didn't just go for it. So uh, I decided to cash in my retirement and just work on the book. Uh, the most dis disastrous financial decision I've ever made, but in terms of my own happiness, by far the best. Mm. And so, yeah, I spent the next year and a half writing this book. Um, and it was really like I had been researching it um, off and on for 10 years. And then I got more intense about it for two and finished the book in August of 2013. How did your parents take that decision? Oh, they thought I was crazy. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Uh, and yeah, I guess I was, you know, but I just had that entrepreneurial spirit and something was calling me to write that book on the history of soul food. I'll tell a personal story about that kind of got me into barbecue. I thought I was into barbecue, right? And then I went to Austin, Texas, and I was just trying all these different barbecue places. And one of the ones I tried was Salt Lick, which was like, you know, the big yep. the big place. So, yep. but because we couldn't get there right away because it's um a little bit out of Austin and stuff, I was just going through these uh, random barbecue trucks, you know, and there's be like a, a black guy and something that looked like, it's not even a food truck, it's like a little stand. Only one person gets standing and it'd be on the sidewalk after the bar and just got some late night drunk barbecue from him and <laughs> i would just keep waiting for salt lick you know but that guy's barbecue kind of stuck in my head uh -huh. right and then there was this black guy he kind of had a kind of process and this is like in the 2000s he had like uh he was an old school black guy he had like his hair was kind of straightened and in like a kind of weird mullet and stuff like you tell he was just an old school country black guy and he was in charge of driving the hotel van. Uh -huh. So on the way to Salt Lake, he's kept talking to us about this place that his sister's husband's brother owns and there's like a screen door on it. It's good barbecue and we should go. And everyone's like, okay, that's nice. That's nice. Whatever, whatever. And then we get to Salt Lake. We eat at Salt Lake, which is very good. Very professionally mm -hmm. run operation. Good food. I'm nothing wrong with the food. And then he drove us back and he, you know, he kept telling us about this place and I didn't really, um, pay much attention we didn't go about a couple months later i saw a documentary on the history of barbecue mm -hmm. and learned about the history of back of black barbecue it was actually a very good documentary and then i was like shit i would have done that whole trip way different like i never really thought of barbecue as being as black a food as it was you know yeah. i just thought it was as a food that black people share with white people in the south right right and suddenly I was so, I remembered that cart and how good it was. And then I remembered that guy's sister's husband's brother's uh, restaurant. I was like, I, damn, I wish I went there. I just, <laughs> yeah. And it kind of consumed me since to find out more about like the history and lineage of black barbecue and the extent to which it's still alive, which is what led me to you. Well, first of all, I need to find out about that documentary because if there's a documentary that uh, points to the black heritage and barbecue, I definitely want to see it because that's kind of rare these days. Yeah, it covers both, but it's very explicit about the slavery roots and how like in the south it was the slaves that were in charge of smoking and running the fires like you know george washington and his friends are, are you know it's like today's cookouts where like the man in the house runs the grill it's not it wasn't that it was the white people are talking doing business drinking having fun and the slaves are doing all the smoking and and prepping and then it followed it into the modern day and stuff and it talked about the white barbecue too so it wasn't a i'm saying this in case some listeners are good at finding it i'm giving this description it wasn't specifically focused on the black roots of barbecue it covered everything but it made sure to give full credit smokestack lightning does that sound familiar you know what i can look it doesn't sound familiar because i don't remember the name but if i 
look at some of the faces in it, I definitely remember the faces in it. So I'll yeah, I'll check it out. If I, if I find it, I'll send you an email after the okay uh, show. Now that'd be great because that's gonna help my my forthcoming book because I I just wanna I wanna give a shout out to somebody who actually did that work. So that's okay, great cool. To hear. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, yeah. So uh, and a lot of this, I I felt the same way about barbecue as you did, especially growing up in Denver. It was more like I thought of it as a family thing, um, and I I knew that it wasn't something that only black people did, and um, we only ate it on the holidays and holidays. And my deepest thinking about barbecue was, oh, that really tastes good. Or how many ribs can I eat? Um, it wasn't until I went to a symposium in 2002 uh, with the Southern Foodways Alliance on barbecue that I started to wrestle with these questions of context and culture, uh, of possible appropriation, all, all of those things, race. Um, so that was a pivotal moment in my life, especially in how I viewed barbecue. And your work on this, because you have a book coming out specifically about this topic, right? Yes. So the working title is called Black Smoke, the uh, story of African-American barbecue culture. And uh, mainly, mainly it's just to reassert how uh, key and influential African-Americans are to the American barbecue story. Because in media today, when you hear about barbecue, you pretty only much hear about white dudes. And it's really two types of white dudes. It's the urban his- hipster with the interesting facial hair and tattoos and the rural Bubba type. You know, the kind of dudes you'd see on Duck Dynasty. Yeah. And that's the kind of stuff that I was looking for when I was in Austin. Like Full, full confession. I was looking for that Food Network cover type of uh, authentic barbecue. I was printing up lists off, off of Eater, you know. So the places yeah. were good, but, you know, I, it wasn't really off the beaten path because I was following that type of narrative that you're just talking about. Exactly. Uh, and that's that's just where you're going to get most of the content. So it's up to us, those of us who love African-American barbecue, to do what we can to put the content out there so that people can find these places. Because they exist. And, you know, they're just not getting a lot of love from the mainstream media. What's been the most surprising thing you've discovered in your research and work? All right. I'm going to give you a snippet because I don't I'm saving it for the book. But I just cool. found two days ago, I found the story of an enslaved man who was running a takeout barbecue business out of his slave cabin. Wow. I know. Can you believe that? How did you find that? Dude, I'm a nerd, man. I'm just reading through all these slave narratives. <laughs> wow. Yep. That's the that's the pro- that's one of the products of hard work, man. Because that's not something you're necessarily going to find through just an internet search. You just got to get in the sources and read. Now, this is going to be a little bit of a possibly strange question, but like with a lot of us black folk, when it comes time to think of like respectable jobs, it's always like, you know, doctor, engineer, lawyer if you're blue collar you're working get a good factory job get a good city job and it's always this kind of thing where there's a feeling that the cool jobs are for white people like you know i'm a food writer you know that's something that people always imagine like oh that's that's uh something like an anthony bourdain does you know what is it like being a black food writer do you come across a lot of other ones do you, do you come across a lot of black people who are just really like uh want to know how to break in to it because seeing you do it makes me think okay you know you don't have to be just some some white hipster guy or some asian girl on eater you know that this is a job that black people can do yeah so uh very interesting question so i have to say i've been in this game for i don't know 10 years now and when i first started there was really only a handful of african-american food writers who, who you saw their stuff show up in mainstream press um, and that definitely has changed. There's a lot more people doing it now, but uh, when I say a lot more, maybe double the number. Um, so offhand, I can think of about maybe eight to 10 people who are regularly writing about food, uh, who are African-American when before it was really only about three or four. But the, the challenge still is, is that, uh, food writing is a very hard business to make money. So, um, 
you know, like I have a day job, so this is really a side hustle, a very elaborate side hustle for me. Um, the people who are doing well in food writing usually are attached to somebody else who can help subsidize uh, their ability to to do this food writing as a hustle. Which probably which probably helps it stay majority white, since uh, you know a lot of times they're more likely to have something that they can lean on, right? Uh, even if it's family. Yep. Yep. Uh, and so uh, the thing is, and, and the other complicating factor is that there are some mainstream media writing jobs, but there's just not a lot of turnover in them. Yeah, I can so, imagine. Yeah. So those jobs only open up every once in a while. Um, and then so hopefully, you know, somebody of color can get those jobs when they open up. And you're starting to see that now. Not necessarily with African-American writings, but your writers, but you're starting to see more people of color writing. Yeah, I definitely have. I definitely have seen that. I've seen like a lot of Asian people breaking in. I mean, it's always a good step in the right direction. But if you had to give an overview of the state of black barbecue, where it's been, what it's been through, where it is now, where it's headed, how do you see things trending? Well, right. So uh, African-Americans have dominated barbecue for two centuries. Uh, especially the cooking of it. Um, but now, getting back to something you said earlier, bar- making barbecue has been reclassified into and redefined as something cool. So now you're starting to see more young white men get into what previously was looked upon as um, me- menial work. Even though it was meaningful because people appreciated the end product, it's now seen as cool and it's now seen as a quote-unquote craft. Yeah, so, yeah. Because okay. once they're interested, it's automatically um, elevated and it's automatically a craft, like right. like how beer is now. Once a white guy um, makes it into a profitable hobby, it becomes uh, elevated. So you're seeing the same thing now in barbecue. So what, what's happening with barbecue now is uh, the black barbecue aesthetic is slowly being uh, phased out. So um, what is what has emerged is now you have these people that are saying this is what true barbecue is. And they're often in defining it in a way that's not the way that black people make barbecue or even serve it. So, for instance, um, the idea is that only authentic barbecue can only be cooked at a low temperature for a long period of time. Now, if you go into black barbecue joints, you know, this, they do a lot of people cook hot and fast. Um and the way that we like our barbecue is, uh, you know, with sauce on it. In fact, a lot of black people have told me that sauce is the most important part of barbecue, uh, more so than the meat, which I think is really, really interesting. Because another thing you hear is that true barbecue should be unsauced, that you're yeah. hiding something. But a lot of African-Americans, they're, they're really into the sauce. One thing that's interesting, right, is when white people get into something, they get to redefine it. I mean, just by sheer amount of numbers and, and platforms and influence. I mean, you even see it, like, just to give like a random example. Like I remember there was a term uh, for that Buster Rhyme song, um, What's a Dillio? And uh-huh. in the black community, the because it's a really New York thing. In New York, Dilly means deal. So he's saying, what's the Dilly, comma, yo. Right. What's the Dilly, yo. So the word that means deal is Dilly. Right. And then white people misheard it and thought that the slang term was Dilio. So they thought you said one word called Dilio and that meant the deal. So I remember <laughs> I was seeing all over the place, like white people saying, uh, what's the Dilio, man? And it's like, no, the word is not Dilio. The word is Dilly. It's Dilly, comma, yo. And then within like a month or two after that song came out, that became the actual, the original meaning was lost, like just overnight. Like uh, there was even a site called Dilio. Like it, like it just became like the word. And I just feel like <laughs> that's the power that white people have. It's not even a nefarious thing. It's just by the sheer right. numbers and platforms 
platform, their arbitrary rules or misconceptions becomes the dogma, the canon. Like that's the textbook thing. Because I've totally heard what you said about unsauced meat is what it's supposed to be. Yeah. So, so in the in the face of such uh, cultural momentum going the other way, how do we as African Americans plant a, fl- a flag on the ground and say, oh, "No, wait a minute, we're." We're just saying that what you do is different. This doesn't mean it's inauthentic or that it's not good. It's just different. But it happens to be something we like. This is the way we like it. Um, And we just need more and more voices out there saying that, no, 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 sorry, yo, this is good stuff. A cool part of your job is, based on following your Twitter, you seem to really get around. Tell us about, like, the coolest parts of your job. I mean, I'm imagining it's got to be the travel and, and the eating. You seem to do a lot of eating. And uh, <laughs> My second question, because this is m- what my personal uh, fear would be, having a job like yours. Like, how do you keep the weight off? Because I would be 500 pounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get asked that a lot. So um, there's so many cool things to what I do. So one, yeah, definitely the travel. I love to travel. Um, but you know, you have to make you have to make sure you check in with your loved ones and your life because travel does take a toll. Um, being on the road a lot has consequences. So, you know, you have to have be with somebody who's down with that. And the other part is eating the food. Love that. Um, but I gotta tell you, there's a lot of bad food that I consume as well. So one of the uh, greatest things though has been really just finding these stories um, and connecting to the history that I just didn't know. And I feel like I connected the ancestors as well. Um, I know that sounds kind of weird, but... Uh, I don't think it sounds weird at all, honestly. Okay. Yeah, because yeah, in, in these, in these uh, a lot of the enslaved testimony, like narratives and stories, you know, they're really open up about what they went through. And so you get, you get an idea of what their world was like. Um, and just finding these stories, um, things that may have not been shared in a long time or completely forgotten... Um, it's just, those are the things I live for. Uh, and then in terms of the weight gain, pretty much every time you see a picture of my food online, I, that's two to three meals. Cause I try to really work on portion control. Uh. And, yeah. And, um, when I was writing the soul food book, I was really good about exercising, uh, along the way. I'm not so good about it now. So I need to get back into a rhythm. And then the other thing I tell people when they see me is that they're witnessing the miracle of oversized clothing. Ah, <laughs> the people too. I imagine have got to be pretty interesting when you get to eat in. I mean, sit in and eat at these black establishments. Who have been some of the most interesting uh, characters and people you've met? Ah, oh, wow. So that's a good question. So one interesting person is a, a guy named um, a chef named Kenny Gilbert, who is in Amelia Island, um, right outside of Jacksonville. He was a uh, he did a really deep run into Chop Chef with that television show a few years ago. Okay, uh, but he's trying to start. He's trying to create a new uh, regional barbecue style, like North Florida barbecue. So he's smoking alligator fish. He's using local peppers. He's doing really interesting stuff. That sounds really cool. Yeah, and then there was another brother in uh, Chandler, Arizona, which is about a half an hour outside of. Phoenix. This guy was a fifth-generation pitmaster from West Tennessee that got talked into going to Phoenix uh, to help this guy start his business. And uh, very fascinating guy. I'm, I'm sorry I can't remember his name right now, but the the name of the restaurant is West Alley Barbecue in Chandler, Arizona. Fifth-generation pitmaster. Yeah. So he had enslaved ancestors who were, like you said earlier, who were in charge of the fires and. Uh, uh, basically barbecuing on the plantation. Uh, and the one thing that's happened as I put the word out about my book is I've now had people reach out to me. And so there's a barbecue sauce called Old Arthur barbecue sauce. And the great grandson of the 
guy that, that started that sauce reached out to me to say that his great great his great grandfather essentially was an enslaved uh, person who was in charge of the fires, starts a you know starts being hired out for barbecues, creates this sauce, and lives until he's 109 years old, something like that. Mm. And so I'm going to include oh, him in my There's two names book. for. Th- Oh, cool. There's two names for that uh, West Alley barbecue I'm finding. One is uh, Bardo, uh, Christian Bardo Brantley, and the other one is Jim Dandy. I don't know if either one of those. Um, the Bardo Brantley, That's the, that sounds more like it. That sounds like the owner. Okay. Okay, cool. Oh, oh yeah. It's, uh, okay. It says Director of Operations, Christian Brantley. Oh, 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 there's three. I'm sorry. There's the owner, Bardo Brantley, Director of Operations, Christian Brantley, and Pit Boss, Jim Dandy. So um, one guy's dark skin, the other guy is... Um, you know yeah. what? It's one of those three names. I'm, uh, we'll find out after and put it in the show notes. So yeah, it's cool that people are reaching out to you now. That's one of the interesting things. Like even with this podcast, um, people reach out to me now, whereas before I had to always track people down. And that is one of the benefits of uh, putting yourself out there because of a reinforcing loop. Like you start researching, you find people, then eventually people start finding you. So that's really cool. Have you managed to um, meet up with uh, this guy? I have. I talked to him, uh, the guy in Chandler, Arizona. Uh, the one who just... No, the oh, one who oh. just... Um, you said reached out to you to tell you about. His, oh yeah, yeah. Um, I have not met him in person. We've we've uh, talked on the phone and we've had an email exchange, but I have not met him in person yet. I hope to uh, one of these days. So the previous books you wrote compared to this one, what are some of the differences besides the focus on barbecue specifically? Like, have you found the process easier this time? Is it going to be a more ambitious scope? Is it kind of the same you're finding as the last one as far as what the end product is going to be? Like, how is this one shaping up? Oh, yeah. Well, since this is my third book, it's definitely a lot easier in terms of writing it. I know what's uh, I know what's going to go into it. I know what it takes to get it done. I know what it takes to make it really sing as a manuscript. So that all's good. Um, so it's pretty similar to the approach of the other books. The soul food book, I uh, was trying to tell the story of different ingredients. I, I would say this book is probably more like my second book, which is on the history of African-American presidential chefs. The book was called The President's Kitchen Cabinet. And um, the, in that book, I tried to tell the overall collective biography uh, through individual stories. And that's how I'm trying to do it this time. Um, so my book is not a travelogue. It's not like, hey, go to Kansas City and get the best barbecue here. It's really more, okay, these are categories of people that have added to barbecue culture, uh, African-American barbecue culture. And I've tried to select interesting people through different points in time and different places around the country. Just to give you a feel like this is not just a regional story, but this is really a national story. I think it's probably good that you're not doing a travelogue because one thing I've kind of realized is when it comes to like barbecue, but interestingly, especially black barbecue, it's like trying to write a book about hip hop or talking or giving your top five MCs. Like it just sparks a lot of argument. Like, you know, I feel feel like barbecue is like the whole top five MCs argument. Like people are very protective of regions, they're very protective of specific establishments. Uh, They're very adamant about who has fallen off and who is uh, still better. I mean, people even track the movement of like chefs all yep. types of stuff yeah so. yep. it's the same thing and i think the travel log has been done um so i, I mean yeah. i'm definitely gonna list my favorite joints because that's what everybody asks has the black barbecue travel uh, been done you think no you know that that okay fair point that has not been done um at least not in the last 20 years that i know of the regions that you've found what is 
the most off the beaten path, surprising style of barbecue? Because I think there's big categories that people know, like, you know, Carolina style, Texas style. But when you mentioned that Florida one, that sounded really interesting. And I was wondering if there are other like off the beaten path, less popular regional styles or like region within a region. Like, you know, uh, yeah, there's there certainly are. But I, I to be honest, I haven't actually been to those places yet. They're on my to do list. But for instance, in Kentucky, they have they're known for a, a, a mutton tradition. Uh, there are African-Americans in part of the state that do a pork steak uh, barbecue tradition. And that's just not something you see in a lot of other places. Um, and then in Santa Maria, California, there's a whole tri-tip, uh, beef tri-tip tradition that you don't hear much about. And then I, I just heard about this last night. It seems like there are some very hyper local chicken traditions in upstate New York. I can believe it because I used to live in upstate New York and they have a lot of people that came from the Great Migration. But unlike New York and other cities that got filled with black immigrants and stuff, so that kind of diversified the black population. When I lived in upstate New York, when I lived in Buffalo, it was still like 95% of black people you'd find there would be people who came from the Great Migration, descend from American slaves. There was not much of a um, Caribbean or African influence there, which made very interesting because it was a, it was very southern even though it was all yeah. the way in buffalo new york so i can yeah i can see upstate new york having a lot of yeah, i can, I, I can imagine too. it yeah as far as uh barbecue goes right are you like a purist now where you like won't go to the mainstream white uh barbecue <laughs> places you just uh time is short i just gotta eat the black barbecue nah. and that's it or like, like like where is white barbecue fitting in your uh, uh oh no no I, I i'm not a purist like that so i i'm just a lover of good barbecue and uh so, so you're not you're not in salt like throwing at the black nah. power sign and like abstaining from the oh no no man some of my best friends okay, are white cool. and they happen to make good barbecue <laughs> so if I if there's good barbecue being made, I find. I mean, like uh, here in Denver, uh, there's really only two African American barbecue joints of note. So you know, but I do need to seek out white barbecue because um, you know it's just part of the barbecue scene here. Uh, but yeah, and it's also I, I seek out white barbecue because I want to contrast it and I want to see what's happening in the white mm. barbecue joints and how that influences what African Americans are doing. And I'll give you an example. So Central Texas is becoming the default barbecue style in our country. And the fallout from that, or at least one consequence of that, is that now you have people showing up in any barbecue restaurant around the country and they're saying and they're asking people where's your brisket and if you know anything about african-american barbecue once you get outside of kansas city and texas brisket's not that's not really a part of our tradition but now more and more african-american barbecue joints feel like they have to have brisket on the menu because their customers are looking for it and if they don't see it they just walk out the door and that's a perfect example of how like things that white people believe kind of become the default normative uh, way for it to be because yeah i mean when you watch the food network it's all this talk about brisket etc and then that just becomes what people think everything is supposed to be you know one thing that i saw in that documentary that i was telling you about that i said really got me fascinated with this topic and since then i've been trying to uh eat uh, black barbecue or learn more about it is um they were talking about how when slavery ended and some of the earliest entrepreneurs that were black and ex-slaves were uh 
barbecue people and pit masters and stuff. And they had these old menus from all these uh, old barbecue places at the turn of the century, like late 1800s, early 1900s in the segregated South. And one of the things that they kept popping up in the menu, and this is what I was hoping you would bring up and I wouldn't have to explicitly ask for it because this is a weird thing I want to Oh yeah. Possum. So. Does that still happen? Is that, <laughs> is that legal? Can you have, I never knew barbecue possum was a popular thing in some regions and I just became incredibly curious. Well, about well no, a hundred years ago, that was the dish. Possum and taters. So roasted possum or barbecued possum and sweet potatoes. That was the preeminent dish. So nowadays, uh, it's possible to get it, but you have to go to a restaurant that has some kind of uh, permission to serve game. Uh, and there's not many places like that from what I understand. I don't think there's a commercial market to raise possum, but I got to tell you, I want to eat it because I want to eat it too. I, I didn't want to out myself as someone who wants to eat possum. I was, I was hoping you'd bring it up <laughs> organically, but yeah, I'm glad I'm not alone. Yeah. I feel uh, huh. less weird for wanting to eat it, but I feel like it's, it's like a part of history. I want to know what black yeah, people back then that were was eating. The like, you know, I mean, it was, it was not only well, I mean, it was eaten in all quarters of African-American society and believe it or not, possum potatoes was eaten in the white house. Oh, interesting. By the servants and by the presidents. President Theodore Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, they'll, they'll all, and Taft, all those dudes liked possum. This restaurant that they showed in the documentary that had the um, possum back then, it still exists. It's like one of the oldest uh, Black-owned barbecue restaurants in the country. When they showed the menu from when it first opened up, and it was an old, grainy, black-and-white picture, and they showed, like, the possums. The first thing I did was go to the website and see if this restaurant, you know, still has it on the menu, and nope, it was, you know, not there. So it's... Yeah. I was like, unfortunately, I can't remember the name of the the restaurant, but it's still owned by the same... um, Is it Jones Diner in Mariana, Arkansas? I think so, because the one thing I I remember about it was that it wasn't in one of the more mainstream places, like Texas or Carolina. You know, those places they keep hearing about as, like, the basic go-to topics for barbecue? It wasn't one of those. It was a place in the deep south that you know sounded a lot more country like you know i I feel texas is a little bit more cosmopolitan south yeah yeah so it could have been it could have been that one so do you have any advice i just want to end it with this do you have any advice for aspiring food writers especially uh african-american food writers or you know anyone else who wants to kind of break into something similar to what you're doing like what you would have done differently the first time what you think you did right what what's changed since the time you entered it so i I think the first thing is um definitely follow your passion because that's is what that's what's going to get you through the hard times uh i just love writing about food i love writing about african-american history uh because the writing is a has a lot of ups and downs so i would say that uh, if you get to the point where you want to write a book i would just tell people to write the book you want to read because uh, it's so easy to try to please everyone else and go down the rabbit hole and follow suggestions of everyone else but just think about what's the book you want to read uh the third thing i would say is share your dream uh, a lot of times we're conditioned not to tell people what we're doing for feel that someone's going to steal it. And that's real. That happens. But I've got to tell you, I've been blessed a hundredfold because I've actually told people what I'm working on. I think people also fear people are going to judge them, you know, if they tell them before it's successful. Like, you no. know, what are you doing that for? That's weird. So I think that probably is that too. Either going to steal Oh, yeah. No, I got a ton of hatering. I still do, actually. There are people that are saying, why are you writing about soul food? That's slave food. Oh, yeah, man. Really? Yeah. That's no, I, damn get shame. I don't get it a lot, but there's definitely a segment of black people that say that to me. Damn, you just opened up a whole <laughs> different can of worms. Yep. That's amazing. Like, wow, God, I would love to sit down with one of those people just to figure out like how they got to that 
point because that's just weird. Like, I mean, I guess it's not weird if you have like some kind of weird. I mean, I guess it's not that different than um, why are you making another slave movie? That's something people say a lot. And I always think, given the how fundamental that was to our country's identity, I feel like there's actually not enough slave movies. Uh, I mean, it's like two thirds. If you include like Jim Crow and that and that era, you can almost argue three quarters of uh, black existence in America was uh, either being in slavery or fresh or one generation right. out of but, it. You know, uh, yeah. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel that same way when people say it about slave movies, but I, it for some reason especially sad saddens me to hear it about even soul yeah. food. Like you know, that's I mean, because because that's one of the few good <laughs> things. Like you know, you can get out of it. Like any sort of slave movie, I can say like, oh, yeah. it's depressing me to see it, but right. the food. So there's there's yeah. two one. So there's really two long stuff standing critiques of soul food. One is that it's slave food, not worthy of celebration. And the other is that it needs a warning label, that if you keep eating this stuff, it's going to kill us. And, uh, you know, my response to the first part, first part, which we've just kind of discussed here, is it's part of our history, it's part of our heritage, but it's a really complicated and interesting story once you actually start looking at what actually happened. And then to the second point about soul food's going to kill us, I'm like, look, a lot of soul food is celebration food. It was never meant to be eaten on the regular. But we've got so many healthy aspects to our cuisine. I mean, think about what nutritionists are telling us to eat. More dark leafy greens, more sweet potatoes, more fish, okra, hibiscus. All of those things are part of soul food. In some black communities, yep. even kale was. Yeah, so it's like even, even kale, which is like this new uh, hip food. Uh, black oh, yeah, no, I tell people I, when I do my talks, especially if it's a predominantly white audience, I just say to them, hey, if you discovered kale in the last five to 10 years, welcome to the party. We've been eating it for about 300 uh, yep. So, uh, you know, so you just got to be ready for that. Um, I would also say just make sure you do self-care as you're writing, especially if you're writing about African-American topics um, and you're really going to start looking at the slave narratives and look, doing a deeper dive into what happened during slavery. Man, it's not easy stuff to read. I mean, almost every aspect of evil was visited upon us during that time and people talked about it. Uh, so, you know, you just got to be ready for that. Uh, and then the last thing I would say is don't leave your day job <laughs> for the side hustle until the side hustle is making enough money to be your day job. You know, the whole self-care thing, like, that's really real. Because have you ever heard the story about Michael K. Williams in uh, no, 12 no. Years what a Slave? Happened? He was filming a scene in 12 Years a Slave that ended up becoming deleted. And this is... Um, what he said, this is, this is verbatim his words. He says, there was a scene that unfortunately didn't make the film where my character, Robert, was being dragged to the slave ship and he was revolting. Um, he was flailing, you know, just going crazy. And around the fifth time that we shot it, Steve, which is McQueen, the director, yelled cut and something came over me. I don't know what it was. I just fell to the ground and I couldn't stop crying and screaming. And the stunt coordinator, he got on the floor with me, a white man, and he cradled me in his arms and he rocked me. He kept saying, it's okay. Okay, Mike, let it out, let it out. And he screamed at the top. I said, I screamed at the top of my lungs for what must have seemed like 15 to 20 minutes and like a cloud just passed over wow. me. Yeah, it, he said it on the new Arsenio show, like yeah. Arsenio brought a show back for a year or two. And it was actually kind of good. I was kind of, I felt bad that, didn't, that the resurgence didn't go anywhere. But yeah, I mean, like that yeah. stuff is, that stuff is real. Like, like that stuff is really real. Immersing yourself in that people yeah. underestimate. So just, just be mindful of that. These stories need to be told because, you know, yeah. it's, they're just being quick. They're being forgotten so quickly. Um, 
Yeah. And any parting information that you think is very valuable for people to know, either about the subject of uh, black cuisine and where it's heading, or about you and anything you're doing. Like, if you want to plug anything, okay. this is the time. Well, to I do appreciate it. that. So, f- thanks again for having me on your podcast. Um, I-, I really want people to follow me on social media because for a lot of the people who make decisions about what stories are going to be told, uh, what social media you have is critical. Uh, so, Soul Food Scholar, I'm on most platforms Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So please follow me there. Um, And then the last thing I'll say is we need to, we as African-Americans, black people, we need to celebrate our food. Every aspect of our culture has gone global. How we talk, the way we dance, the way we entertain, play sports. Yeah, everything except our food. And why is that? I think it's because we don't have enough people cheerleading for our food. Yeah, and I also think that our food blowing up in our hands because the Popeye chicken sandwich is an aspect of black food that's blowing up, but it's in the hands of a corporation. Like, you know, uh, fried chicken made by black people is not blowing up like that, you know? And I think that's something else too. Like, uh, to the extent that the food does blow up, it's usually not a black person profiting from it. It's like a white person doing elevated versions of black food. I'm putting elevated in scare quotes. But you know, you know know what's a little complicated about that? For a lot of times, uh, fine dining African-American chefs pushed themselves away from soul food. They didn't want to be associated with it. So they actually created the space for white people to come in and do what they're doing. So my thing is like, be proud of your food. That's a great point. Embrace it and make money off of it, just like everybody else is. Uh, Amen to that. All right, Adrian, you're welcome anytime you want to come back, especially once your newest book is done. I would like to um, discuss it after I read it. So yeah, keep us posted on that for sure. Okay, sounds good. We'd like to promote it. Great, have a good one. 